Welcome to Worker Movement, a podcast dedicated to the working class, a podcast dedicated to raising class consciousness. This podcast is for you, for us, for the worker. And with that, let's get started. On today's episode of Worker Movement, we'll talk about why people are protesting social distancing and why it makes no sense. Essential workers are economic hostages, but do the protesters know that? Yes, they do. That's the point of the protest. With social distancing, there's less exploitation of workers, and that's a problem for the ruling class. Yeah, we should talk about what the ruling class is, just, just to get the listeners up to speed. So what we're going to talk about, and, and part of the whole worker movement thing and class consciousness, is to make sure that you understand that if you go to work and receive a paycheck by exchanging your labor for money, you are a worker. If you are able to use your capital or investments to make money all day, you are not a worker. You are part of the capitalist class or the bourgeois. If you are a worker, then we'll call you the proletariat. And I just want to give that distinction so that people know that the people listening to this podcast, if you go to work in exchange for money, you are part of the working class. The uh, kind of dichotomy of the 99% versus the 1% is a very sim- like large simplification of this general class consciousness theory. Uh, most of us are part of the 99%. All of the essential... Yeah, it will always be part of it. All of the essential workers that are forced to go to work to make economic ends meet are part of the 99%. They're part of the working class. Now, some of the protesters uh, may be part of uh, this 99%, part of the working class, but if they are, they're not correctly advocating for what's in their best interest or what's in the best interest of class solidarity for other workers. I personally don't think that most of the protesters uh, are of the working class. They are inconvenienced because they can't get haircuts and they want other people to go back to work to serve them. Right. And, and, and just to touch on that a little bit. So if they are uh, protesting and they are part of this, you know, exploited class or worker class, you know, they, they've been convinced um, that their rights have been violated somehow. And, and they cling to this idea that individual liberties are more important than society itself. Right. That, that the selfish behavior of individuals to go out and do these things is more important, you know, for them to be served than it is for the health and safety of these quote-unquote essential workers. And that's a shame because in the end, it's about building a society that, that's for everyone, not just for individuals. I just want to jump in there just, just to give that, that little bit more context on that. So in uh, some of these various states where the protests are occurring to, to a larger degree, uh, they're effectively presenting this argument that if we do not return to work, there will be more economic hardship that will occur. And I think this is a bad faith argument. Uh, There's plenty of reasonable actions that can be taken to preserve the economic well-being of all of us without requiring that people go to work and risk their lives to get COVID or Corona or whatever you want to call it. And it, it, it doesn't make sense. It's a, it's a false choice. And it's being presented from the context of the ruling class of we need people to go back to work so we can keep making money. 
Yeah, and it's it's back to that uh, red herring that they gave us that that you're looking again at at your requirement to survive. You know, they have to go back. But in in general, a lot of the services that are being disrupted are not the kind of services that we need right now. They're not in the medical, right? You know, they're not in the education field. These are these are the service ones that that are great to have, great. You know, but they're not they're not a need for society at this moment in time, especially doing during this this uh, giant pandemic, you know, what's needed is compassion and care for individuals that are sick. And, and we could talk about that stress later on in this episode and of how, how that leads them to more expectation, even of the petite bourgeois, are you, how that'll be in the future. Are you telling me that bowling is not essential? I'm telling you bowling is not essential. It is a nice to have, but bowling uh, right now is something we can live without beaches. I know it's beautiful outside in some areas we can live without, uh, Going to the gas station, we can't live without. And those workers that are inside shouldn't be exposed to other people who have potential COVID because they want to go out and, and drive around and race around and have fun because that puts their lives in danger. So, again, a lot of the inconvenienced people, you know, are actually endangering the, the workers every day. So what if I want to get on a plane and fly to Georgia so that I can go bowling? Am I putting people's lives at risk because I want to go bowling? You are. But I really want Absolutely. to go bowling. Yeah, but the worker at the bowling alley who is no longer able to, to get unemployment now has to go to work or they lose their unemployment. So it's, now they're economic hostages because they they pass the laws and rules that say if you if you turn down work, guess what? You're done receiving aid. And because of that, they're forced to go interact with people who could be exposed. Airline pilots, the stewardesses, everybody in the airport serving people that are trying to get on the airplane. Again, the same thing. They're being exposed to other individuals who are selfishly choosing to do recreation instead of staying at home and, and protecting themselves and others. So my desire to go bowling inconveniences like literally hundreds of workers along the entire logistical supply chain of enabling me to throw a plastic ball down a maple floor. Exactly. Yeah, 100%. So Cisco and Reinhardt still have to deliver food, right? to those places you still have to have lights and parking you still have to have all the machines upgraded you had to you know taken care of so you had to have the the lane guy go in the back and take care of that and, and make sure everything's polished the running shoes all of those things are still required uh maintaining the roads maintaining the drivability you know maintaining your car with oil changes all the stuff that you do when you increase mileage are all there leaving the house hundred percent of the time is going to lead to exposing potentially another person, which is a nightmare. So if I want to, I shouldn't be exposing people. If I want to help, I should crush my desire to go bowling and choose not to go bowling. Yes, sir. <laughs> that's, that's true. You should not go bowling. You can wait a little bit longer to go bowling <laughs> in the future. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't really even understand it. Not that I don't understand bowling because who doesn't love you know, bowling, it's a fun sport to have. That's fine. So, But I don't understand the, the need to go out when there's a pandemic. Now, I understand the need to be social because we are social creatures. Um, but I don't understand the need the need to, to, to go in and, and totally disrupt someone else's life. So it sounds like you're presenting an anti-bowling narrative. And I think I'm going to have to go protest my right to go bowling. You, you, exactly. <laughs> you heard exactly what I was saying. <laughs> in this podcast, we are anti-bowling. 
Um, yes, very. No, we are not anti bowling at all. We love we love bowling. We are actually anti bowlers who are choosing to go bowling during a time in which you shouldn't be bowling. So there's a little bit of an un- unintended consequence too of uh, the bowling alley owner, and I want to make money so that you know I can feed my employees because they're essential workers. And let's assume for a second that I'm not a total scumbag because not all small business owners are scumbags. In fact, most aren't. Right. It's the larger corporations that are scumbags. But uh, so if I uh, am sort of pressured or through whatever motivation, regardless of whether it's a good or bad motivation, open my bowling alley. And as part of opening my bowling alley, uh, I incur costs. So I'm, I'm probably already paying rent. Uh, let's say for the last, you know, three weeks, I, I've been closed. I'm, yep. I'm as a business owner, I probably have to continue paying rent or if I own the building, uh, you know, I'm, I'm probably paying some nominal electricity fees, nominal running. I mean, there's nominal utilities involved in kind of shuttering a business like a bowling alley. Uh, there are, there are my employees. I, did I decide to furlough them or are they uh, continuing to get paid or are we running some skeleton operation to keep the lanes maintained. I have no idea what maintenance is required to ongoing of a bowling alley to close for three weeks. But if I open and I get six people to come, I'm losing money. Like more money yeah, than you're I losing money. wasn't open at all. And I'm exposing people right. to risk and I'm stretching supply chains and logistical networks and like for what end? To what? Who benefits in that scenario? Yeah, that's a that's a that's a great point, and I think it's that's lost on people who don't really understand the, the cost of business. So, yeah. your two hosts here have been within large businesses, small businesses, and have been within the the catalyst system for a while in a lot of supply chain or other engineering or or roles. So. When we talk about shuttering doors, you talk about spinning something up, it's it's not just, yeah, like you said, you brought up lots of utilities. So conditioning the air, getting the water, make sure that's correct, spinning up the fryers, refrigerating, getting the food in, making sure you have enough material for everybody. It You know, it, and it, it goes all the way down to oiling the lanes, running extra electricity during a time we could be stressing it, making sure all the lights are on and all the fun stuff, the network connections. And there's a lot of things that go in just in building maintenance itself. Make sure the machines are on. There's a lot that go in just to run this machine, and it, you're already at some cost. Your building's already not being paid for, and by you operating and paying three employees ten dollars an hour, you're losing thirty dollars an hour just in operational costs, just by having people stand around. Right, and no, you know, not even including taxes or anything else that that may be there that you have to pay for having people in the building. And and you're exposing your workers. And mm-hmm. depending on how much you actually pay your workers, they may suddenly be ineligible for certain unemployment benefits or uh, because maybe they didn't work for three weeks. You know, you don't have a group health care plan or something like that where there there are some of these incentives that come as a result of, you know, being an employee that are suddenly not there. And that that's it's like a, it's an incurred cost, but it's not reflected in anything but the worker point of view yeah and it's really kind of a, and i'm going to use a word that's pretty harsh your psychopathic view that that all of a sudden your business is more important than your worker i mean the the empathy of an individual should be there that says 
it's better for all of us to stay home. It's better for us to work together to fight this. So it's stay home, collect the unemployment that was already been paid into, established by the government, and and keep your, you and yourself healthy. You know, there's other costs too associated with it. I mean, most schools are not running right now. So how does a worker get uh, child care? Right? They either pay for it out of their pocket or they're going to have to put them in a group care somewhere or rely on other family members. So now you're inconveniencing a whole other group, segment of people. Well, it- and exposing them to more. And it's more than just like a, a subtle inconvenience of, oh, you know, your cousin has to watch your kid for six hours. It's you've suddenly increased the internet connectivity of social circles and there's a potential, you know, contagion path for additional people becoming sick, which is the entire point around social distancing. Mm-hmm. So there, mm-hmm. it's kind of a risk multiplier. Um, that that leads to sort of non-intuitive um, consequences that I don't think uh, a lot of people are thinking about right now. Yeah, and, and, and it, it goes without saying that that we are here in this podcast and else that we we don't, you know, we we support the worker and keeping the worker safe. We're not in the business here. Or we're not trying to keep and, and make small businesses successful when when they're not keeping their employees successful. So so we can say things like you know we support small businesses. And it's true we support our people that are employed through these small businesses. And this is really important distinction because we really mm-hmm. want to make sure that the people returning to work are returning to work because it's needed for the co- the country, not not needed for someone's profit. Yes, yeah, this idea of of you know, give me liberty or give me COVID and the false distinction there is we can responsibly make choices that do not result in people dying for the profits of rich people. Yeah. Uh, And some some of this exploitation is happening at the, as part of sort of the uh, stimulus relief that's happening. So Roughly $350 billion got ad- allocated to small business owners uh, who are supposed to be able to seek uh, something like $10 million uh, based on the size of their company and how many employees they had over some period of time. And so most small businesses got totally screwed by this. Uh, it was intended to allow, well, I, I, I shouldn't say what was or wasn't intended, but the uh, I think that on the face of it, it was intended to help workers uh, who were going to be unemployed, businesses who were not going to have customers because they're service-based or they require foot traffic and people are not supposed to be going outside uh, and you know commingling. So these small businesses needed help and they applied for help and they didn't get help because large corporations applied for help and they got help because yep. they have relationships with major banks. The banks in some contexts have an interest in making sure that these businesses remain solvent because maybe they're underwriting, you know, their existence or they have other loans or stuff like that. And you have these $10 million, uh, you know, loans effectively become low interest and, these big businesses, they're not going to default that $10 million loan. In fact, the $10 million loan like doesn't even do anything. It, it does not measurably help them in any way, shape or form. 
because they already likely had access to these loans to begin with. They're just getting a lower interest rate. So these large corporations are basically stealing money that was intended for small businesses that would actually plausibly assist workers uh, and basically taking it for their own at the detriment of all of us. Well, the money machine goes burr, right? I mean, it is just printing in there, buying debt at such an insane rate right now that it's it's hard to imagine how inflation or even deflation is not going to happen. And who's going to pay for that? It's not going to be the big corporations. It's going to be the worker, right? If deflation happens, wages will be suppressed. You know, your your home, relative home value will go down, but your mortgage will be basically increasing faster every year. If it's big inflation, you're probably not going to see a large pay increase, which means that you're going to be paying more out of your percentage for for items. So it's, it's sort of a, a catch-22 either way. So deflation uh, is defined as when the value of money increases. So let's say I go to the store and I buy a candy bar for a dollar. That's just the nominal value of money. It's arbitrary, but we're going to say it's $1 is one candy bar. With deflation, suddenly that $1 buys you two candy bars. With inflation, you can only buy half a candy bar. Yep. So, so what happens here with with deflation? So or inflation with with deflation, it leads to suddenly any debt that you may uh, hold uh, is suddenly effectively more money. So if you had uh, a loan, let's say your car payment, it's a hundred dollars a month. You know, that was manageable at one point, but now money is suddenly worth more. Now it's harder to get $100. You actually have to earn more to pay the same $100 because the uh, just relative cost of everything, like let's say you sell candy bars. And using the previous example, it was, you know, two candy bars uh, is a dollar. So you're really selling one candy bar for 50 cents, whereas previously you were able to sell it for a dollar. So now you have to sell twice as many candy bars to pay for your, uh, you know, car loan. That's bad. That is going to have a huge impact on workers that uh, are relatively, uh, you know, periodically bound by their paychecks. They don't have a lot of savings. It's going to be, uh, a low uh, liquidity environment where people don't spend a lot of money. There's not going to be a lot of money going from, you know, I bought something here and then the person that sold that goes over here and buys something else. The velocity of money slows down with deflation. It also hurts corporations that have large debt loads because suddenly they have to decrease the prices of their goods because the general public has uh, less buying power. And that causes uh, defaults and companies are unable to pay down their debt service. So that's deflation. With inflation, uh, which we've arguably seen over the last couple of years, the Federal Reserve just printing money. And we're seeing that now. There's something like $8 trillion has been printed. And this leads to their the the same amount of money that you make as a worker and let's say the minimum wage is $15 suddenly your $15 doesn't go as far at all so the cost of goods and services have gotten more expensive and if your salary doesn't 
increase with inflation, suddenly you're effectively getting paid less. So kind of both of these scenarios are not great for the worker. Uh, the general consensus seems to be that inflation will happen because the Federal Reserve is printing so much money. But I mean, who knows? It's the future. So I think in either case, workers get totally screwed because nobody's actually thinking about what the ramifications of these decisions are and how uh, kind of the large scale economy is going to kind of correct or uh, kind of equalize over the next several months as people stop spending money because they don't have money. Yeah, and it, it also leads to an interesting idea about, about money. These stimulus checks came out, and some of us may have gotten them, some of us not, you know, depending on where you are and the income and if you file taxes or not. Um, are people spending this money because they have to, or do you think people are saving it? I mean, this was designed to help, I guess, businesses stay alive, but I don't have any idea of, of how this money is going to be used. And I feel like individuals who are afraid of losing a job may not go out and blow money into an economy that. 70% required on service. Yeah, I find it very unlikely it, that it, uh, people are going to take their $1,200 and go out and buy uh, consumerist stuff. In all likelihood, it's going straight yeah. to their rent, which goes straight to the bank or straight to the landlord. That money doesn't re-enter the economy at all. Right. Um, it, and we go straight to the bank, I mean, it's just paying off debt. So is paying off debt going to spur the economy? And, and we can go into a different podcast if we need to for this one. But but no, it won't. That's not how we jumpstart a, a basically a low liquidity market. It's not by giving out payments that have to go to the to the landlord or, or the mortgage payment, right, which is technically still your landlord. What, what needs to happen is a total freezing of all debt services. So people go out and spend. But even that may not be enough. So this this podcast, you know, starts off a little bit talking about essential workers and, and the needs of it. So let's, let's pivot back to that. But 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 listener, please understand that that we spend a lot of time thinking about what, what's best for not just you know, ourselves and our family, but for all workers. We 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 do not care about the bourgeois. You guys should know that listening to this, we care about the worker. Uh, so with that, let's 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 go back to what we talked about before, uh, where we talked about uh, sort of essential workers. And there's one. One class of people that, depending on where they're at, they're either doctors or nurses. Some are petite and, and bourgeois. We'll go into that in another episode. And, but the other is, is a worker. And so let's talk about the difference between the nurses and doctors and and, and how they're essentially right now hostages within this, this pandemic. So if you're a doctor or you're a nurse, uh, you're basically going to work every day and you're dealing with just death and carnage. You don't have enough resources. Your life's probably at risk because you don't have the proper PPE, the masks, the gowns, the face shields. Uh, you're working long days, long shifts, probably don't get to see your family as much because you should be quarantined so that you don't expose your family. I mean, it's a real terrible situation uh, at a personal level for many of these healthcare workers. And, you know, you hear, oh, they're heroes or whatever. And it's like, yes, they're doing a job that nobody else wants to do. And in order for the rest of us to feel good, we call them heroes because they're doing something that we don't want to do. I, I like that that distinction because there's a lot of times that we conflate um, work um, with this hero complex. 
you know, and, and we won't go into the politics of saying like um, the teachers or, or police officers or how, how we put certain jobs on a, on a pedestal and we actually hold them sort of in in great regard when they should be. Um, but, but most of it is, is are we holding them hostage to this job right now because they, they can't do anything else? Who else are going to do this? And so we put on top of them sort of this, this guilt that if they don't help, people are going to die. But at the same time, they work inside of this environment that was basically driven crazy or down to the crazy sufficiencies because of capitalism. So they're running, you know, like graveyard shifts that have like like no no nurses. And so when it's time for a pandemic, there's there's no room for a surge. It, it kind of was the same conversation about toilet paper. There's no surge in any of our capital in any of our hospitals because it's capitalism and, and we drive everything to max efficiency. So that same day turnarounds on our, our PPE. So they're not holding inventory. So again, when, when a pandemic comes, there's no inventory of PPE because they're not going to make profit and margins if there's a warehouse full of PPE in their basement. So everything has been cut dry. They don't, they don't hold extras. And, and it's, it's kind of a shame that we, we force our workers into these sort of these predicaments. It's the same thing with our, uh, our local trash you know, people or sanitation. Where they're forced to keep cleaning up the streets and keep cleaning up the trash from individuals who may be sick, who may be dumping their tissues or their, their infected stuff into the trash. And so the, the term economic hostage basically means that these individuals right now have to work in a job that's high demand, and there are being rules put on them that are endangering their lives. And in order for us to cover up the fact that the lives are in danger, we're calling them heroes. And that is because we know there's going to be a large percentage of death rate or a large percentage of sick within these workers. And the only way that we can cover our tracks is to call them heroes. And I think if you were to go and ask uh, in some set of these people, it would be, I want to stay home just like all the the white collar workers that get to do their telecons and their daily meetings rather than working 80 hours a week and effectively a morgue watching people die. Like, Nobody is compensated to deal with that. And we tend to call people heroes that aren't compensated for what they do. Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. And, and, and we keep calling it a war, and yet they, they're not seeing any wartime pays, pay. N- nor right? is the rest of the system we keep, we keep... escalating to meet the demands of these absolutely necessary activities that need to occur yeah don't don't get us wrong we love our nurses this is and we we know that that they're fighting every day and night we're here in support of them in solidarity 100 percent uh we, we we just we find it despicable that we we we're, we're we're taking these terms that are that are are met normally for a wartime and, and meant to sort of give you a patriotic feel in in putting them on, on individuals who are, are fighting for their own lives and their own livelihood every single day. And we're, we're missing that fact. And it's, it's really important for us that, that we get that off our chest. So when you see people protesting the right to return to work, the right to continue having workers exploited, uh, you should think about what we should be protesting. And that's the right of these economic hostages to have appropriate benefits, appropriate compensation, 
and appropriate safeguards to protect their own safety and the safety of all of us. Yeah, it's kind of weird. It's because these protests, I mean, and we talk about, you know, the selfish nature of these protests. It's as if they take for granted that individuals are in hospitals fighting for lives. You know, what happens when we get another surge in a few months, right? The the same workers who are already burned out are doing this again. And so it's actually could strain our system to the point of failure when individuals stop working. They They just had enough because they can't do it anymore. How many how many months can you go living, you know, on the edge, 60, 80 hours a week, running multiple overtime shifts before you just say enough, enough, I can't do this in burnout? Yeah, there there is a and and that's there's a logistical problem to burnout and staffing for these essential jobs, and there there are there is absolutely training that is requisite for many of these you know jobs to be a doctor, to be a nurse. There's intense schooling. It's not something that you can just drop a hat and you have, you know, 10,000 more nurses. Right. Uh, It's also at this point in time, a choice to work as a nurse. It's a choice to work as a doctor. Uh, I think we should be looking at uh, possibly uh, invoking some sort of national service uh, where we start training people to work and perform these essential functions. Yeah, I do too. This isn't going to be the last pandemic that we have, and this is only going to get worse as not only the population ages, but, but as, as the workforce changes, right? As certain diseases become more proficient, as the earth gets hotter and we get more things like West Nile virus moving north, it's only a matter of time before this happens again. And if it's happening at 18, 24-month cycles, I don't know of any system right now that can handle that unless unless we do that, unless you plan a scenario through scenario planning in which we have a constant, you know, uh, engagement of pandemics. When I say constant, I mean, you know, every 24 months we're doing it again. And that's a scary thought. It really is. But at the same time, what's, what's, what's also scary uh, is the fact that, that during this moment of time, we have individuals who are forced to work because they're not being taken care of by those that, that they elected into office because of some ideologies that are, that are perverted. You know, the neoliberal idea that money will solve all problems is, is a very perverted thing to think about right now. That food should be a commodity during a pandemic is, is pretty crazy to me. For future episodes and to learn more about the worker movement, join us at workermovement.com.